Good evening. I invite you to join me in Acts 8, verses 26 to 35. If you are not there already, Acts 8, verses 26 to 35. And as you're turning there, just some words to kind of set the stage here, as I mentioned this morning. Um, my plan this evening is to preach uh, one of the sermons of my great-great-grandfather, Bob Jones Sr. Uh, this is a sermon that he preached in the Chicago arena at a Chicago evangelistic campaign that lasted from April 28th to May 12th of 1946. It was a different time. And uh, to kind of help us feel that different time, uh, Ron, can you go turn the air conditioning off? <laughs> no, we're not going to quite go that far. Um, but it was a different time. Uh, the message is called Opportunity on Wheels. Um, I have I spent a lot of this week typing this message out. It came out to about 20 pages. Um, so I did make some cuts to it and kind of trimmed it down a little bit, but I tried to keep it as real and authentic to its original um, as I could. And so we are going to work our way through this. Um, this is not my sermon, but it is still God's word. And the Lord still works through his word. And so let's pray that he would as we get going this evening. Heavenly Father, may those words that we have just confessed in song truly be the desire of our hearts that you would revive us again. That you would send fire from heaven to light our souls on fire once again. That we would remember the passion that we had, our first love. Heavenly Father, even this, this evening through this passage and through this message, may you challenge us to be soul winners, to reach the city of Altoona for the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a glorious task it is that we have been called to, and may we not take it lightly. Open our eyes, Heavenly Father, to the need around us, to the glory and the power of the gospel to the reality of eternity, that you may be lifted high. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Before I jump in, just one other word. Uh, as I mentioned, this was preached in Chicago. Um, I actually had a hard time finding a message to, to do this with because many messages are very tied to the place and time in which they are preached. And so, uh, I thought about changing all the references to Chicago to Des Moines, um, but then there's parts of the message that tie into being in Chicago. Um, so you'll just have to pretend with me that we are in Chicago, and that it is 1946. There's a special verse to which I wish to call attention. Then Philip opened his mouth, and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. Tonight I want to talk to you about a kind of work that every Christian in the whole wide world can do. One kind of job that you can do for God. Do not try to excuse yourself. Do not say, it is not my business, not my work. Every Christian can do this job. It is the job of personal work. Now, I'm taking it for granted this evening that most of you are Christians. 
And if you are, then it is your business to go out from this service to find sinners and to tell them what to do to be saved and then to try to get them to do it. Imagine as you go home tonight that you find a man underneath a wrecked automobile that he turns his dying, staring eyes into your face and says, Look here, friend. I am dying. I will be here just a minute and I am going out into eternity. Can you tell me what to do to be saved? I wonder if you could. I would be ashamed to call myself a Christian if I were not able to tell people what to do to be saved. There are some things in the Bible that I do not understand. Things too deep, too high, and too broad for me. There are things that I have never grasped. Depths that I have never explored. But there is one thing in the Bible as clear as the light of the clearest noonday. And that is the plan of salvation. By grace you are saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Any Christian in five minutes' time can sit down and learn what to say to a lost man to tell him how to be saved. You do not have to be a theologian. You do not have to go to school or to college. Any ordinary man can go out and tell the lost what to do to be saved. The trouble with most of us who call ourselves Christians is that we have never really surrendered to God. Honestly now, have you ever done it? Are you out and out for God? The trouble with most of us is that we just have not come clean with God. In a way, we have given God our hearts. And we are trying to trust him. We hope that when we die, we will go to heaven. Some of you folks have just enough religion to keep you uncomfortable. You are always afraid that the devil is going to get you. You would not want to die suddenly for anything in the world. You are hoping that when you go to die that you will be conscious and you have plenty of time so that if you don't have things right, you can make them right. Most of you are going through the world with just enough Jesus to keep you from enjoying the world and just enough of the world to keep you from enjoying Jesus. A little bit of religion is a very uncomfortable thing. So let me ask you, have you ever surrendered to God? Have you ever given God your hands? How many times have you ever lifted your hands when you did not have back of the effort a selfish purpose? Have you ever given God your feet now wait a minute, don't you dodge tonight. Don't you use your feet just to walk around to attend to your own business. What about your eyes? Did you ever give your eyes to God? Don't you use your eyes to see just the things that you want to see, the things that delight you and entertain you? Did you ever walk up and say, God, I want to give you my eyes. 
I want to give you my ears. They are filled with so many sounds, so many words, and so many voices. God, I want to give you my ears. I want you to unstop them so that I can hear the cry of the heart that needs God. Have you ever got, given God your tongue? There are all these long, mean tongues that some of us have. Sam Jones said he knew of a woman down south who had a tongue so long she could sit in the parlor and lick the skillet in the kitchen. These long, slanderous tongues that some of us have. We are always talking and saying things. Say, did you ever give God your tongue? God wants your tongue. God has something he wants you to tell people. Have you ever surrendered to God? People talk about giving God their hearts. When you came to Jesus, you did not give God anything. When you came to Jesus, you came not to give him your heart, but to get a new heart, a heart free from sin. And now that you are saved, God wants you, wants you to give him something. You could not give God anything when you were a sinner. You had nothing to give God but your sins, which Jesus bore on his body on the cross. But after you got saved, then you had something God wanted. And he still wants it. I will tell you what it is. It is your body. Around Christmas time in our home, we begin to talk about what we want for Christmas. And I say to Mrs. Jones, do you know what Bob would like to have? Do you know what Fannie Mae, that, that's Bob's wife, would like to have? Do you know what Bobby Third would like to have? What would your mother like to have? We begin to find out what they want so that we can get those things. You see, we love each other. But brothers and sisters, God does not hint at you. Listen, the Lord Jesus Christ stands here tonight. Oh, if we only had eyes to see him. He stands there on this platform. He is right there by you. He's looking into your face and he's saying, I saved you one time. I would like for you to do something for me. You have something that I want you to give me. You have something I really want. Listen, how can you resist Jesus Christ? He says, here is my brow. I gave that brow for a crown of thorns, and I did it for you. And here is my back. Look at it. That is what I did for you. These hands of mine, look at them. I did it for you. I did it all for you, and now there is something that I would like for you to do for me. I want you to give me something. I want your body. Listen, your body is your contact to the earth, and God wants some feet around Chicago to run errands of mercy. God wants some ears in this city to hear the cry of thousands of hearts that are crying to God, crying for God, even when they do not know why they cry. God wants human eyes to see lost men and human tongues to tell these men the story of redeeming grace. 
You remember the passage in Scripture that says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. That passage of Scripture is addressed to Christians. We know it's addressed to Christians because of the word brethren. And he is saying, I beseech you, Christians, to give God your bodies. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to turn him down? Are you going to say no to him? Are you going to walk up and say, Lord, I am sorry. I have been so mean and selfish, but I will give you my hands. They are not much, but I will give them to you. God, if they are any good to you, you may have them. And God, here are my feet. I've been running errands of sin, but now I give you my feet. I'm going to start out to run errands of mercy in my eyes. You may have them too. Oh, these eyes have led so many of us astray. But you can have my eyes, God, and my tongue, and my ears, and everything else that I have. Let's come clean with God. Let's quit all this shaming business. Let's, listen, let's, let's quiz, quit this humbuggery stuff in this country. Let's surrender our lives to God and come out and out for Jesus Christ. What do you say? The average Christian in this town is not doing as much to win souls to Jesus Christ as the average politician is doing to win votes. If you Christians went after sinners like, politici like politicians go after votes, you would get souls like politicians get votes. The politicians of this town have the town divided. The political bosses know all the people and who they are kin to. They are organized. They know their job. Here's a man running for office. He goes out to see a certain man, a man that is not home, but he goes back the next day. And he keeps on until he finally sees him. And after a while, he says, Bill, I am running for office, and I want you to vote for me. We're old buddies, you know. We have been in the same crowd. And Bill, how about your mother and your father and your grandparents? You have lots of kinfolks, Bill. Do you ever think, do you ever do that much to keep sinners from going to hell? We say that we love Jesus. We are orthodox. We believe all the Bible. Yes, sir, we are fundamentalists. We believe the Bible from cover to cover. You can't put us with that modernistic crowd. Not us. We do not act like it. We have loved ones and friends who have between them and hell just a little heartbeat, and we do not seem so much concerned. A man said to me not long ago, heaven is far away and hell seems like a distant land. Why you Christians do not know how close you are to heaven. There is just a heartbeat between you and that place and listen, sinner. If you are sitting back here without God tonight, the only thing between you and hell is that pump, pump of your heart that may stop at any minute. 
I would hate to think that the only thing between me and hell was a heartbeat. I bless God that between me and hell is a cross, and on that cross, a bleeding lamb. You have loved ones, and some of your best friends, people who are dear to you, the only reason that they are not in hell is that their heart is still beating. People are dying with heart trouble by the thousands today. And you are playing at this soul-winning job. There are thousands of us, faithful Christian people in Chicago. And God help us to wake up and get busy. We have the greatest business on God Almighty's earth, and I am ashamed of us. God, be merciful to us poor, lazy, good-for-nothing Christians. The last one of us ought to be on our faces before God, begging him to have mercy on our poor souls. How indifferent we are. How unconcerned we are. There's a story of an old preacher who walked up to a lady on a mezzanine floor of a hotel. He said, lady, lady, are you saved? She began to cry. He quoted a verse of scripture and walked away. A few moments later, her husband came up and found her crying. He said, what is the matter with you? Oh, she said, dear, the strangest man you ever saw walked up here a few minutes ago and asked if I were saved. Why didn't you tell him to attend to his own business? Oh, she said, but dear, if you had seen him, you would have thought that he was attending his own business. Listen, that is your business. Your business is to witness to the saving power of Jesus Christ wherever you go. Do you know what your vocation is? Your vocation is your main business in life. And brothers and sisters, your vocation is the job of winning souls. Keeping house or filling a job, that is not your vocation. That is your hobby. Witnessing for Christ is your vocation. And may God move on our hearts. May he stir us to our depths. I've been searching my own heart lately. I'm ashamed of myself. I'm preaching to all of us preachers. We preachers ought to be ashamed of ourselves. You deacons and stewards and elders, you Christian leaders, ought to be on your faces before God, begging him to forgive you for your laziness and for your no account. You are neglecting your job. If any business in that town had an employee who did not stick to his job any better than you Christians stick to yours, that employee, employer would fire that employee. And we go on with a good God and neglect it. Aren't you ashamed of yourself? I am ashamed of myself. And we ought to be. A man said to me, Bob Jones, you are killing yourself. Don't tell me that. What is a better way to die than this? Men are wearing themselves out in sin and pleasure and sensuality. Yet you and I are sitting down loafing on God's job 
and patting ourselves on the back and throwing kisses at ourselves and thinking that we are wonderful. The last one of us in this house ought to be weeping and begging God to pardon us and forgive us for being no good. In the Bible, we read about a big religious gathering. Suppose we call it a Bible conference. It was not really that, but that's what we'll call it. There was a big convention in Jerusalem. The people were having a big time. Jesus was in town. And he went out to a pool where an angel troubled the waters once a year. A man was there who had been crippled for many years. And whoever got to the pool first after it was troubled always got well. Jesus looked at the man. He said to him, why don't you get in the pool when it is troubled? I have nobody to help me. But where are they? They're over there teaching Sunday school classes. Where are they? They're going down the street with a Bible under their arm to hear Dr. So-and-so talk about the Antichrist. Where are they? They're going around trying to learn the techniques of running a church. Can't you see them? With a songbook under one arm and a Bible under the other, going up the temple for a great convention. And this poor cripple is out here just waiting for somebody to help him. He wants to get in. He sees the water troubled. He turns his eyes that way and cannot get in because there was nobody to help him. Listen, there are sinners in Chicago going to hell by the thousands because they have nobody to help them. And don't blame the sinners because multiple thousands of them would come to God if, they, if we were on the job. You say, oh, Bob Jones, we have the preachers, and, and we suppose, wait a minute. Shut up. Shut up. You cannot get out of it like that. A preacher cannot do your job. A man said to me not long ago, Bob Jones, you were doing the work of four or five men. You write for newspapers. You edit a paper of your own. You have all these many radio stations. You have much of the burden of Bob Jones College. You do as much preaching as any other evangelist in the country. You are carrying this heavy load of so many organizations. You are doing the work of four or five men. And I said, do not tell me that. No man ever did the work of more than one man. My work is my dead level best. And your work is your dead level best. You cannot do my job and I cannot do yours. And if you do not do your God-assigned task throughout eternity, there will be a job that has never been done. We all have a job to do. Jesus said, go ye therefore and teach all nations. No man can go into all the world, but there are enough Christians on earth that if every man would go as far as he could, we could go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Years ago when I was a young preacher, I was holding a meeting in a little town in Louisiana. One day the pastor of a church said, Bob, I have a funeral to conduct and I must be out of town. Will you go up to the cemetery at 10 o'clock and conduct the funeral? I said, well, I, I don't know anything about the man. The pastor said, well, he's an old Mississippi swamper who died. 
He was an old sinner and blasphemer who never entered the door of a church. You can't say anything to him anyhow. The family just wanted some preacher. You can read some scripture, pray, and that is all you can do. I went to the cemetery. The coffin was brought in. And there were scarcely enough people to bury him decently. He was an old miser and nobody cares for a miser. Even other sinners do not care when an old, miserable, miserly sinner like that dies. Because I remember that there was only one woman at the cemetery and she lived in a home nearby. She had a woman's heart in her bosom. She possibly said to herself, they are burying something. It must be a human being. So she ran out into the garden and grabbed some flowers. It was the only floral offering at the grave. I read the Bible and I prayed the best I could. We covered him with dirt and put him to bed with a shovel. I walked out of the gate of the cemetery and stood there for a moment. I put my arm around his only living son. I said, my friend, my father died one time and my heart almost broke. I do not know what I would have done without Jesus, and I want to ask you if you will not trust Jesus as your Savior. He looked at me for a moment. His face will haunt me in eternity. His lips quivered. The muscles of his face twitched, and tears started to run down his cheeks as he began to sob, and he said, Mr. Jones, I am 30 years old. I have lived in this community all my life, and this is the first time that anybody ever took interest in my soul. Listen, there are people in your block who will be dead before long and they will tell God that nobody in Chicago ever asked them to accept Jesus. Listen, you could evangelize your, evangelize your block in one day. The city of Chicago could be evangelized if we were organized in a week's time. The gospel could be given to practically every home in this city in a week if we were organized. I experimented down south in a rural district one time. I believe we got the gospel to 99 people out of 100 within a 50-mile area in six months. You can do this job. The trouble is we do not do it. Don't you want to be a soul winner? The greatest business in the world is winning souls. Listen to me. The greatest business in the world is not keeping people out of jail. It's not keeping people out of the grave. The biggest business on earth is keeping people out of hell and taking them to heaven. Don't you want to be a soul winner? You can be. Every Christian can be. The scripture that I read tonight tells us that the angel of the Lord said, Philip, go down that road. And he went. He did not stop to argue. He did not talk back to God. He did not say, now, Lord, I want to ask you some questions. You're not going to call me to pray in public, are you? I can't do that. You're not going to call me and ask me to do personal work. That is out of my line. Don't you talk back to God. You are to be a witness. You are to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And Jesus says that he will be with you. Do not talk back to God. You can do anything that God tells you to do. Back of God's commands, he puts omnipotence. You can sail any sea, climb any mountain, scale any wall when God tells you to do it. 
I tell my students in the college never to ask where the road leads, just ask, am I on the right road? The right road leads out at the right places. If you will go God's way, you will always make right contacts. Years ago, out in Colorado, one Sunday night, I dropped into a tent meeting. I was a young preacher, had led many to Christ, and had a little bit of a reputation as an evangelist, and yet I was awfully stubborn. I was a determined fellow. Seth Rees, whose son is now up here in Minneapolis, was preaching. I didn't know who he was. I had never seen him before. I heard his text, and I heard his sermon. And I've never forgotten it. His text was this, If God be for us, who can be against us? And he said, we will put it this way, Since God is for us, who can be against us? It stuck to me. He talked about men wanting their way. At the close of the service as a young preacher, I walked up and knelt at the front seat. I took the reins of my life out of my hands, and I put them into the hands of God Almighty. I told God that he could have his way with me. I have not been all that I should have been since that time. I've been blundering along the road, but I am standing here tonight saying, God, whatever you want, that is what I want. Your way is my way. Go down that road, the angel said to Philip. All right, Philip answered, I'm going. He went down the road under divine direction. It is wonderful to march under God's orders. It is wonderful to be going the way that God said to go. You cannot miss the right road if you are out winning souls. That is God's way. He went down there and he found a man reading his Bible. That's just like God. When God sends somebody out on a job, God gets there first and he fixes conditions so the job can be done. I've never had a campaign manager to get me evangelistic campaigns. All my life, I have had all I could ever do. Never has there been a time when I did not have more invitations than I could accept. I've never hunted meetings. But I've tried to follow the policy that when I have a job, never to think of the next one. Do that one. I tell our students, when you get into a room, clean up that room where God puts you. Don't ask any questions. Just fix the room. When you get that room all fixed, God will open the door and he'll put you in another one. And when you get in that room, fix it all up. Dust it. Clean it. Straighten it up. Don't leave any of it undone. And when you get that job done, God will move you into a bigger room. This time, you may be a little proud and stuck up. You have a big room to work in. If you get stuck up, God may put you in a little attic. And if he does, go on in there. That is where you belong. Say, let's go with God down that road. Philip got down there and found the eunuch reading the Bible. Listen, I testify to you Christians that under God's orders, you always get results. When Philip saw him reading the Bible, he ran thither to him. I believe he literally ran. I've never known God to use a lazy man. I've known God to use a crippled man, blind man, a weak man, a sick man. I've known God to use people who did not have much sense, but I've never known God Almighty to use a lazy man. Study history. The men who God used through the ages have been men who got up and hustled. The king's business demands haste. 
He ran thither to him. If you had seen him after that chariot, you would have thought that he was crazy. A person cannot get a dose of real, old-time religion without some people thinking he is crazy. The trouble is that we have been subnormal so long that we have forgotten that Pentecost is normal Christianity. We have been running subnormal in this country. When I was a young preacher, I used to hold meetings in certain towns, little places. People would write me up in the church paper as Reverend Robert Jones, not Bob Jones. They would say, Reverend Robert Jones held a meeting in our town for two weeks and he did no harm to anybody. Listen, brother, I would rather step on somebody's toes and knock somebody out of the way on the road of life and go places for God than to sit down and do nothing. The trains that travel fast stir up dust, but they carry the most passengers. And so Philip ran to him. He didn't go after the chariot like so many of you go to prayer meeting. Like so many of you go to church. We ought to run to our houses of worship with joy and thanksgiving. Philip ran. Here was an opportunity on wheels. The opportunities of life are on wheels today. A few years ago, about a quarter of a century ago, not far from this spot, old Billy Sunday spoke to his thousands. Men and women who came down the aisle and shook hands with him and came to God, many of them are up in heaven with him today. It's not been many years since Dwight L. Moody shook this city and Chapman moved it and other men moved it and they are dead and gone and now you are in the first great citywide united campaign of this kind in a quarter of a century. What a golden opportunity to touch a city for God. The chariot is passing and such a chariot may not come back this way for another quarter century. Personally, I never went to a city with any heavier sense of responsibility. I came here more fatigued than I have been in many years. The most terrific strain I have had in a long time, I have had in recent weeks, but I asked God to give me the strength to do my job the two weeks that I am here. I don't want anybody's blood in Chicago on my hands. If this campaign does not stamp this city for God, I do not want to have to answer the judgment seat of Christ. One time in my old home city, Montgomery, Alabama, I went down to a jeweler to have my watch fixed. I went back the next day to get it, and a stranger handed it to me. He saw my name on the outside and said, Oh, you're Bob Jones, the evangelist. I said, Yes. And he said, My name is so-and-so, and I have come to this city, just started to work today. Well, I said, I'm glad, I'm glad to see you. I hope that you like our town. I stood there and talked to him for a few minutes and I started off and I said, I wonder why that man wanted to meet me. Most folks run from preachers. I wonder if he's a Christian. I believe I will go back and ask him. But then I said, no, I'm busy today. I will not bother. I will see him some other time. I went down the street, but as I did, I said I ought to go back and talk to that man. But then I felt again, well, I'm awfully busy today. 
I'll make a little note, and when I come downtown in the morning, I will drop by to see him, and I will ask him if he is saved, and if he is not saved, I will try to get him saved. I will try to lead him to Christ. And so I made a little note, I put it in my pocket, and I went on about my business. The next morning, I got on a streetcar near where we lived and started downtown. I unwrapped my morning paper, and on the front page in big headlines, I saw where that man that night, standing at his desk, fell dead. I got downtown as quickly as possible. I rushed in. I said to the proprietor, who was an officer in the church, was Mr. So-and-so who fell dead here last night a Christian? And he said, I don't know. He was a stranger in town. He just started to work here yesterday morning. I don't know anything about him. And I don't know either. I touched that life for a moment, never to touch it again. Life's opportunities are on wheels. You touched somebody today that you will never again see on this side of eternity. You sat by somebody on the streetcar. You talked to somebody in a store or a shop or a factory. You had a chance. You met a fellow pilgrim on his way to eternity. The chariot passed, and that chariot will never come back again. Oh, God, forgive us. Forgive us all, Christians, God. Are you a sinner tonight? Are you in the service unsaved? If you are, a chariot is passing tonight. It may never come back anymore. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. Do not let this chariot pass. Get in. Join yourself to it. Trust Christ. It might be the last chariot that will ever pass you by. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even as we have revisited this sermon preached all these years ago. We know that the word of God is just as true and just as powerful as it was then. And I pray that you would use these words once again for your purpose. Give us a passion, Heavenly Father. Open our eyes to the souls all around us who are dying and going to hell today. Give us a burden for our city, for our neighbors, for our friends, for our family. For every life that we touch. Give us an urgency, a boldness to share the gospel. Heavenly Father, we may say tonight, I'm not good at that. We don't have to be good. We just have to share the gospel and trust that you will work through your word. Give us boldness, Lord. Give us direction. Give us faith that the gospel may go forth. That even we gathered here will go out, that we will have opportunities even this week to share the gospel, that we will take those opportunities and that we will see revival started even here. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to close this evening by...
singing the song, A Passion for Thee, number 420.